We're going to end our study on anger today. I hope you're excited about that. I, I wonder if what happens to me happens to you when I'm studying something. God puts me through it, so I really learn it. And anger has been something we've been wrestling with, it in, uh, at least in my life. Have you been wrestling with that too? Has God been faithful to give you opportunity to learn and apply, you know? Well, I'm glad we're going to end it. When Ben, my son, was just a little guy up in Delaware, I had a nursery worker come up to me one day after church because, as she put it, quote, I just had to tell you about your son. Now, to anyone who's ever had a son, you know that those are frightening words. So I sat down to hear the inevitable. She said he was in the nursery contentedly playing with a particular toy when along came some other boy, probably the son of some choir member, and yanked that toy away from my son. And she said that Ben responded with such gentleness and patience. And I said, well, that's because he's his father's son. And she was amazed at that. She said he didn't fight with that other boy at all over that toy. He just watched him walk off. There were no tears, no screams of complaint, nothing. He just sat there, and this lady was amazed at that. Of course, he's his father's son, so I wasn't amazed at that. Well, after a minute, she said, of looking around the room, Ben spied out another toy. And he got up and went over and he got the toy. And she thought to herself, oh, that's good. He's found another toy to play with. But that's not what he did. My son is a thinker. And he headed over to this other kid who was now happily playing with the toy that Ben had been playing with. And he stood over that little kid and he had the toy like this. And she thought to herself, oh good, I see what he's doing. He's going to offer that toy to the kid so that he can have his toy back. And I said, well, you know, he is his father's son. She watched in amazement at this incredible little guy who then took that toy, raised it up in one hand, bopped that kid on the head with it, the kid screamed in bloody murder. Ben took his toy and went back to his side of the room. And I said, well, you know, he is his mother's son. I hope you know that was very controlled anger. It was. It was not uncontrolled anger. It was controlled anger. We might even say spirit-controlled anger. Just a question of which spirit. Because at age two and a half or three, I'm sure he didn't have the Holy Spirit yet in him. Well, today, my friends, we're going to bring this study of uncontrolled anger to a conclusion. And we're going to look today at what we call spirit-controlled anger. Now, we've had a great time, at least I have, I hope you have too, looking at four different areas over the last four weeks of uncontrolled anger. We looked at blocked goals. Had a great time that day as we looked at challenges to our deity. You know, how dare someone do that to God? And God, of course, has to unleash his wrath against those 
who would block his goals or her goals. We saw trauma times, a not-so-fun time, where we saw that our emotions can become elevated either through trauma in the past or trauma in the present. And then with our emotions sky high, as things occur in our life, we overreact with uncontrolled anger and beat up those closest to us. We looked then at unforgiveness, and we saw that if we don't deal with the issues of the past, we will parade them into the present. And when we do that, again, we will unleash uncontrolled anger, become a menace not only to ourselves, but to those around us, and we'll beat them up. And then last week we looked at a very important area, the area of demonically motivated, demonically controlled anger. And we saw how the enemy, through our sin, can get an open door and get a stronghold in our life. In the area of the soul, the seat of the mind, emotions, and will. And he knows which buttons to push to wreak havoc, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. And please understand, we're responsible for that. Uh, the enemy may have the stronghold, but we're the ones who open the door, and we're the ones that continue to allow him to push those buttons in our lives. I'd put it this way, we were the victim, but by failing to deal with our victimization properly, we have become victimizers, not only of ourselves, but of everyone around us. And sadly, especially those who are closest to us. But we're responsible. Today, however, we're going to look at good anger. And not just good anger, but the only kind of good anger, which is Holy Spirit-controlled anger. And we'll define it as this. The settled determination of our lives, in union with the living Jesus, released against all that is against God. That's what we need to be about. I'd put it simply. We need to be angry people. Isn't this exciting? We need to be angry people because, my friends, God himself is angry. Anger is an attribute of God. It's a part of God. And please understand, God's anger has to be there. He is good and he is holy and he is full of love. And he has to, by necessity, bring all that he is against all that is contrary to him. His goodness must come against evil and malice. His holiness must come against sin and unrighteousness. His love must come against selfishness and envy and covetousness. Or he would cease to be God. Now please understand this. The world can rise up in anger. Unbelievers can rise up in a righteous anger against sin and injustice. It happens all the time. But remember that in the fall, man became separated from God. So his anger has a source, and the source is now himself. Please understand that even though man was created in the image of God because of the fall, that image is marred. And so the natural man, when he rises up against anger and injustice and sin, which we know the world around us can do, it will rise up with self-interest as its source. How do we explain that? Well, some examples. I think one of the greatest examples of history is the Crusades. You remember where the Christians went down to Jerusalem to kill all those Christ killers? 
I think of a parent who, who where their child sins, rises up in such a vehement anger, they end up abusing the child and sin. We can expose the sin of another, but we do it not with a motive of love, but with the motive of bettering our own position. The way we do it is often not to restore the one who has sinned, but to beat them up in a self-righteous attitude. I think one of the classic examples of this in history was the story of two women in, in uh, England when they found out that Sir Winston Churchill smoked cigars. They were at a party, and the one woman told the other, Did you know that Winston Churchill smokes cigars? And the other woman was so shocked, she almost dropped her martini. I had a friend of mine who had someone come to him for counseling, and, and when he came for counseling, he looked at my friend's TV and he said, What is that? And my friend said, What, what are you talking about? And he said, What is that over there? And he said, What? What are you talking about? And he looked around the room, and there was nothing out of the ordinary. He says, That right there. And he said, that is, that's a TV. He said, if I'd have known that TV had been here, I would never have come to you for counseling. And he expressed his self-righteous anger. Incidentally, the man was coming to him because he was involved deeply in sexual sin. Isn't that interesting? See, this is the worldly type of anger. It's an anger, and I'll put it this way, that can have an unrighteous source, an unrighteous motivation... Or an unrighteous implementation. Now please understand, this kind of anger is often effective. But it is also often very, very destructive. And that's, my friends, where the glory of the new covenant comes in. The glory of the new covenant, that Christ is in us, expressing his life through us. And therefore that means he would be expressing the perfect anger of God through us. To all in the world that is against God. Through the glory of the new covenant that Jesus has come to live inside of us, you and I can be righteously angry as we mirror and minister to the creation around us all that God is against all that is not of God. It's the right source this time. It's God inside us. It's the right motive, which God's motive is always love. And it's the right implementation. Well, what sort of things will we find the life of God being angry against? Let's just list a few. In Isaiah chapter 1, we see God angry against religious ritual. We see God angry at people who neglect to do good. We see God angry against people that fail to reprove ruthless people who continue to beat up other people. And there's a place in this world where you and I need to stand up against those sort of things and say, you know we see it in Jeremiah 22 where the people of God were failing to care for widows and orphans. And God gets angry about that. We see it in Jeremiah 7 where God is angry against those who steal and those who murder and those who commit adultery and those who, who commit false oaths, those who lie. And again, there's a place in this world where you and I as the people of God under the control of the Holy Spirit need to allow ourselves to express His life through us and stand against these things. With an anger that has a proper source, a proper motive, and again, a proper implementation responding against those things. How about this one? This is one that's not taught very often. James chapter 5. The anger of God is kindled against employers who do not pay proper wages 
to their employees. God says that those cries go forth from the laborers. The Lord of Sabbath hears those cries. Equally, God is anger against employees who would rob employers by not doing an honest day's work. Numbers 11, I like this one, the rebellion against leadership. God is really into that. You remember the story of Miriam? She just complained against Moses. And what did God do? Struck her with leprosy. I must confess, there are times in my flesh when we've had uh, some uh, complaining against me. I've said, Father, bring on the leprosy. Thankfully, he hasn't answered that kind of prayer. Because equally, in Isaiah chapter 5, God is very angry against corrupt leadership. Leadership that does not lead in holiness and in love. And my friends, I hope you see from just this list that we could go on and on and on and on. We could be here for weeks and weeks, months and months. We could probably occupy ourselves till we all die and go home with things in the scripture that God is angry against. Because there's a lot in this world that is against God. And I point that out to you just to simply say this. There is a great need for angry people in this world. Angry people. Holy Spirit controlled, Holy Spirit motivated, Holy Spirit implemented angry people. To stand against all that is against God as God expresses his life through his people. A tremendous need for that. Why? Because spiritually angry people will be willing to risk their reputation. Spiritually angry people will be willing to risk the rejection of others. Spiritually angry people will be willing to risk personal loss. And if you think about those three things right now, my friends, who do we know that did just that? That was Jesus. Jesus risked his reputation. Jesus risked rejection. Jesus risked personal loss. As the Holy Spirit life was lived through him. And he stood against all that was against God. And God intends to reproduce that same life of Jesus in and through us. That's why scripture says, beware the man that everyone thinks well of. Did you know that? What a verse. Beware the man that everyone speaks well of. Why? Because that man has no convictions. He's got no spine. He's got no backbone. He's got nothing that he stands for. Other than this, self-preservation. He'll be whatever he wants, whatever people want him to be at that particular time. And he'll never count the cost of standing for God against all that is against God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But I'd like you to think about it right now. In the scriptures, as you look at the Old and New Testament, there are two supremely angry people. More angry than anyone else. And when you look at their lives, you'll see that they accomplished more in the economy of God than anyone else did. Is your mind working? Who would they be? A hint. There's one in the Old Testament and there's one in the New. I heard the one. In the Old Testament, who would it be? Moses, that's right. How about in the New Testament? Yeah, the Apostle Paul. Malcolm Smith put it this way. 
Give me an angry man any day. Because in an angry man, the Holy Spirit has to only do one work. What is it? Harness the anger. But when you have a man who is totally devoted to self-preservation, a man who is passive in the things of God, when it comes to standing against all that is against God, the Holy Spirit has to do not one but two works in that man. First he has to kick him in the backside and get him angry. And then he can harness the anger. Malcolm, in fact, told the story of when he went to a church in New York to pastor. And everyone in the church said, have you met Elder Joe yet? You've got to meet Elder Joe. He's the greatest guy. Everybody loves Elder Joe. You haven't met him yet? Too bad. You'll meet him soon and you'll love him. Everybody loves Pastor Joe. Then finally Malcolm met the man and he said the most useless man he'd ever met in ministry. Because he stood for nothing other than what people wanted him to stand for at that particular moment in time. And that man could never lead the church. Do you know why? Because the world is marred with lies. The lies of the enemy. And that's how he destroys people. And the only way to defeat a lie is with the truth. But the truth has to be told. The truth first has to be believed and received, and then it has to be told. Anyone who would hear the truth and believe it and then hoard it to himself because he doesn't want to risk rejection is a man who will never be used in the kingdom of God. The only man that's going to be used in the kingdom of God is the man who can receive the truth, believe the truth, and then with the conviction that he stands for right against all that is wrong, that man will allow the Holy Spirit to live in and through him. An angry man will do things. He'll be angry enough at the lies that he sees destroying people to stand up and to speak against them, no matter what. Even at great personal loss. Because eternal life is at stake. Because the well-being of the church is at stake. Be angry, but what? Sin not. I stand here to tell you something today, my friends. About four years ago, I went through a real crisis. In my own ministry. As I sought to faithfully proclaim what I believed was the truth of the new covenant. And there was conflict. I reached a point where I finally told the Father, Father, this isn't worth it anymore. And I'm going to quit. And I talked to my friend Malcolm, and he sent me a set of tapes on Holy Spirit anger. And when I listened to those tapes heading down Segan Lane toward airline, the Holy Spirit broke through and I cried and I told my father I am so sorry for thinking that the proclamation of truth would be an easy road in your church and father let me tell you I am angry I am angry at the lies that are told in church 
And I am angry enough by your grace to stand and fight against it. And I'm not going anywhere. And the next time I saw Malcolm in San Antonio, he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm staying and fighting. And he said, good man, good man. (laughs) An angry man will stand against the lies as he allows the spirit of life to proclaim truth through him, no matter what the personal cost. God's people deserve the truth. God's people deserve the freedom for which Jesus Christ died to make them free. Amen? Well, my friends, what does Holy Spirit anger look like then? If this is what we want to be about, if we're going to be willing to be angry and not sin, if we're going to be willing to let the Holy Spirit live through us and express His life against all that is against God, what does it look like? I don't know. Not fully. What's the key word there? We don't fully know. Nor do we really want to know. Because if you and I could say, this is what Holy Spirit anger looks like, and we could list it, what would we then be in danger of doing? Looking at what Holy Spirit anger looks like, Instead of looking to who? The Holy Spirit. And then this would become a formula that you and I then try to pull off and we end up living independent of God and expressing fleshly anger. Do you see that? That's not our job. That's not the question. Now we do know some of what it looks like because we've seen it, we can see it in Scripture. But it's not a full exhaustive list of what it looks like. Because the Holy Spirit is, is infinite and there are infinite circumstances. And each circumstance requires not a list that you and I try to exemplify. The circumstances that we find ourselves in requires a God living through us to face those circumstances. Do you see the difference in that? But I think it is worthwhile to look at this so that we're not shocked when it happens. Did you hear that? Don't try to emulate this, especially this first one. I'm only giving you these examples so that you won't be shocked by Holy Spirit anger when you see it. Because it looks very foreign to what I think the church has called anger. The first example is, of course, Jesus. He's a supremely Holy Spirit-filled person, right? Isn't that right? And what did this supremely Holy Spirit-filled person do in John chapter 2 when he went into Jerusalem for the very first time with his new gang of disciples? In John chapter 1, you remember what happened? He went out to be baptized. He came back from the baptism. John the Baptist said, there's the Messiah! And everybody looked at him, 40 days in the wilderness, sweaty, smelly. This doesn't fit. So the second day, that is the Messiah. I really do mean it. And finally a couple of them followed, and then a few more, and they went and got a few more. And finally, what did he do? He went to Jerusalem with these new disciples. Went to Jerusalem, what did he find? He went to the temple, the place of worship. And what was happening? The religious establishment was ripping off the people of God. Isn't that amazing? 2,000 years and it still hasn't changed. People had to bring unblemished lambs. So what did the religious establishment do? Sorry, brother, that's just got some blemish on it. We've got to reject your lamb, Drew. But tell you what I'll do. Over here, we got some pre-approved lambs. See? Ten times the cost. But you do want to offer the sacrifice for your sin, don't you? 
See, and I rip him off. So he goes to pay for the lamb, but he's from Carthage, and so poor Drew, he's only got Carthaginian coin. Well, you know, here at the temple, we only accept shekels. So, brother, tell you what you do. You go over here before you get your lamb to the money-changing table. And you can exchange those Carthaginian coins for shekels. Oh, and by the way, there's a, a fee for that. And so we rip him off again, you see. And Jesus walks into this scene, this place of worship. And he says, enough! How dare you do this to my father's house? And one man makes a whip and goes berserko. Boom! Kicking over the tables and swatting and swinging and people flee. And temple guards. Alright, wait, well, you're running into this. You see, I could be like a rock star. We could really get into this. This would be fun. This is what Jesus did. Do I need to do some more or are you getting into it here? Not to the electronics, though. <laughs> Come here, David. Let me use you. <laughs> this is what he did. And what does Hebrews say about this Jesus? He did it all without, say it, sin. That's amazing, isn't it? When you and I see real Holy Spirit anger released, it might look very foreign to what you and I think. And we might think that it looks like sin. How about Paul in Galatians? I love this. This is one of my favorite passages in all Scripture. One of these days we're going to teach Galatians. Would you go there? The Apostle Paul was the champion of what? The New Covenant. The champion of grace. Why was he the champion of grace, do you think? Because he had come to recognize in his own life that he needed that more than anything else in his life, right? And somebody who has come to know that they need grace will become a champion of grace. How many of you know that? You're all champions of grace, right? You all know that you need it more than your own selves, right? That's why you're here. Well, you know what happens to champions of grace by those who don't think they need it? Or by those who only pay token devotion to it? What do those people do against the champion of grace? Well, you know, the only reason he preaches grace so much is because he wants to be popular. It's such a popular message. You mean I don't have to do anything? That's right. That's what grace means. Horror, says the religious establishment. See? And they'll say, well, the only reason he does that is because he wants to be popular. Well, don't you know that those words made it back to the Apostle Paul? And so he wrote this letter. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. Verse 6, chapter 1. Unto another gospel, which is not another but there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Now hear this. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And we said before, so now I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than the gospel that you have received, let him be accursed. Verse 10. Now, do I sound like a man pleaser? Do I sound like I want to be popular? That's an angry man. 
He's so angry that in chapter 2, you know what he's going to do? When Peter decides to play grace hypocrite, hanging out with the Gentiles, but some Jewish believers come who are still locked into grace. They come to Galatia. What does Peter do? Oops, the brethren from Judea are here. Sorry, Gentiles. And he hangs out with the Jews. What does Peter, what does Paul do? He even puts it in Holy Scripture. I'll have you know in chapter 2, I stood to him to the face. How dare you do that, Peter? Some angry man. Spirit-controlled anger. Willing to risk rejection. Willing to risk reputation. Willing to stand against all that is against God by the power of the Holy Spirit, no matter what the cost. And then he'll put it in words to the entire church. And I was going to read this to you in the Amplified because it's so good. And I left my Amplified Bible in my office. Anybody have an Amplified? Well, may God have mercy on you. We'll have to do it in the good King James. Oh, you foolish Galatians. And in the Amplified, he doesn't stop right there. He says, oh, you stupid, foolish, ignorant, you know, and on and on it goes. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been openly set forth, crucified among you? Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made purpose, perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? And he lets them have it. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It's a man who will stand. How about in the Old Testament? I have a man named Moses. Remember the story in Exodus chapter 32? Moses was up on the mount getting the Ten Commandments. God said, "Uh uh-oh, my anger is burned against those people. They're doing some crazy things down there. Moses headed down the mountain. And he saw it. He saw the calf. He saw the dancing. Incidentally, a few verses later, it says they were all naked. What does that tell you what's going on? And Moses' anger burned. And you know what Moses did? You know the story. What did he do? He broke the very tablets that God had given to him. His anger rose up within him. The God-given commandments. And what does he do with them? And he just whack, smashes them to bits. And most of us think on that. But we don't read on. It gets better. Do you know what Moses did with the golden calf? He threw it into the fire. And then he took it out of the fire and he ground it down into little tiny particles. And he took the little tiny particles and he put them into the water. And he said, now you drink it. Whoa. That's pretty heavy. Especially in light of another overhead. Did you notice in that passage, there's nowhere that Moses is rebuked for what he did? If he had done wrong, wouldn't we expect God to say, hey buddy, you went too far? Not only that, God then showed Moses his own glory. To the extent that Moses' face then radiated with the glory of God. And then we've got Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. And what does that say? You ready for this? That Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Whoa. I think maybe we got a wrong definition of meek in the church. Wouldn't you say? You know what the word meek is? The meek shall inherit the earth. Isn't that what we've been taught in church? What have you been taught in church? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Go ahead, Steve. Beat me up. That's not the definition of meek, not in terms of the Bible. Is that what you could see Moses doing? 
The meekest man in the whole world? You know what it really means? Strength under control. I want to be a meek man, don't you? I want to have strength and I want it to be under the control of the Spirit. Unleashed as He leads and empowers to stand against all that is against God. Amen. But be careful, my friends. Be very, very careful when it comes to this thing of anger. We don't want to be angry people. There are too many warnings against anger. Proverbs 22, 24. Have no friendship with an angry man. Just don't do it. It'll get you into trouble. Proverbs 29, 22. An angry man stirs up strife. We don't want to be an angry man or an angry woman. Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Be not hasty to be angry. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. We don't want to be angry. Would you say that with me? We don't want to be angry. What do we want to be? We want to be Holy Spirit angry. The injunction is very clear. Be angry, but do not sin. We don't want self-motivated anger. We don't want self-empowered anger. We want spirit-empowered, spirit-motivated anger. That's what we want. Well, I imagine there's some thoughts going on right now that would center around this question. How do we tell the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? How do we tell the difference between self-motivated anger and Holy Spirit-motivated anger? Is that a question? Do inquiring minds want to know? My friends, that's not the issue. Again, be careful. If you're going to look at your own life and try to figure yourself out and determine is this righteous anger or unrighteous anger, what are you looking at? You're looking at your behavior. Who are you looking at? You're looking at yourself. And beloved, that's not what we're to pursue in the new covenant economy. Our goal is not to try to figure ourselves out. Our, our focus is not to be on us. There's a great danger in that that we'll become self-absorbed and that's called pride. What is to be the focus of our lives? Jesus. That's the issue. You and I aren't supposed to be looking here and saying, well, was that selfish anger or was it Holy Spirit anger? That's not the question. The question is, was I abiding in Christ? That's the issue. And when I abide in Christ, I leave the consequences to Him. Well, it sure feels like it was unrighteous. I understand that. If that's true, though, then whose job is it to convict you that it was unrighteous? Say it. It's the Holy Spirit's job. And He can do His job. So our goal, my friends, very simply, is to let him express his gentle, angry life through us by faith. Now, if you're still questioning it, ask him. Psalm 139. If you're in doubt, ask him. Search me, O God. See if there's a wicked way in me. And it, he'll convict you. And if he doesn't convict you, then what? Thank him and move on. Don't become self-absorbed in this area. That's dangerous. 
abide, become Jesus-absorbed. And I did this several years ago with you, but I think we need to do it again as we wind this down, because this is very, very important. Throughout the scriptures, you and I are called to have a childlike relationship with God, right? A childlike relationship with our God. In fact, when that passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 18, the word that's used there is a little child. Become a little child with your God. What does a little child have in terms of its relationship with its parents? Dependence. Does that child worry about where his next meal is coming from? No, he depends upon mom and dad. Does that little child worry about paying the rent? No, they're carefree. They know that God's going to take care of things. Well, my friends, this is how you and I are supposed to live with our God. Now watch this, please, because this is powerful. When you and I live in a childlike relationship with God, He fills us, He meets all our needs, and that allows us to have an adult relationship with people. Do you see that? But because of the fall, when man stepped out and declared his independence, what he was really saying was, I'm going to have an adult relationship with God. I will be as God. When man did that, he lost that filling. He lost God meeting all of his needs. And now he has a childlike relationship with other people. Do you see that? When I have a childlike relationship with God, I can have an adult relationship with people. But when I have an adult relationship with God, I will have a childlike relationship with people. Do you realize what this means? It means that the world that you and I live in is a giant nursery full of a bunch of screaming babies. You took my toy, I'll bop you on the head and take it back. And it leads to unrighteous anger. Because it is concerned supremely with who? Self. Even when it is meted out righteously, it is with an unrighteous source. And therefore, ultimately ineffective. Over here, when I return to what was my birthright, a dependent relationship with God, where I live with Him as a child, then I can have an adult relationship with you. Because as His life fills my life, and by faith His life is released, that life will minister to you love and gentleness and peace, and patience, and kindness, and all those things against which there is no law. But please understand, that life will also minister to you righteous anger when called for. But it will be an anger that has the Spirit as its source, which means it will be implemented properly with love, with the desire for correction from you, not to punish you, so much as to correct you. It will be a love that will count the cost and be willing to risk rejection because it's spirit-empowered anger.
This is the relationship that you and I can have with each other and with the world around us because of the glorious new covenant. And there's a world out there and there's a church out there that needs spirit-angry people. I pray, I really do, that each and every one of us would put our lives on that altar and become the living sacrifice and allow him to express his life through us and stand against all that is against God. So be it. Father, I thank you that we have brought this to a, a close. Certainly not in terms of understanding. There is certainly more to learn. And there will always be more to apply. But Father, at least in terms of the basics, we've seen the cost and the consequences of unrighteous anger and we don't want that. We don't want to beat up people. We don't want to beat up our kids. We don't want to beat up our spouses. We don't want to beat up our friends. We thank you that you've exposed some of those causes of unrighteous anger so that we can deal with them. But Father, neither do we want to be passive. We know that you put your life in us, your spirit in us, the very same way you put it in Jesus. To bring truth and life and light to a world that's very dark. And may we be willing to have that life released in all of its anger, spirit-controlled, spirit-motivated. Whatever way you would seek to release it, may we be willing to count the cost that we might be vessels of that life to the world. So be it, Father. In Jesus' name, so be it. Amen and amen.